And thank you, Pastor Danny. Thank you, uh, praise team, for leading us in worship so well this morning. Uh, ask you to open your copy of God's Word to First Peter chapter five. We'll be in the whole of that chapter today as we wrap up First Peter. And if the Lord tarries for forty-five more minutes, we will have finished uh, the entire book of First Peter uh, on Sunday mornings together. And so that would that would mark my you know first entire. Uh, book having preached through in my first senior pastorate, and so that's um, that's good for me. It's good for us, and, and an exciting time that we've been able to share in that together. Uh, as uh, we begin sort of the Christmas season now, I still think it's too early. If you're already listening to Christmas music in your car, stop it. Wait, <laughs> wait until December. Just like let November finish, and then all right, good. I love Thanksgiving, and it always I feel like it always gets crowded out by the Christmas season. I love Christmas. Christmas is a great time of year, but like I really like Thanksgiving, and I feel like it should get at least through the end of November. But uh, as we begin our, our uh, sort of Advent season here in the church next Sunday, uh, we're going to be, uh, for those uh, five weeks of December, working through uh, uh, taking a, a perspective on Christmas from the Old Testament covenants, of which there are five, uh, five major covenants, major promises that uh, God gives to his people and to specific individuals in the history of Israel that are all pointing and leading up to Christmas. And so next week, we're going to look at the uh, covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 and how that prepares us for the coming uh, even of Christ. Well, so far we have uh, seen a lot in the course of Peter's first letter. We started out <clears throat> looking at Peter's uh, initial greeting to the various churches scattered through what is uh, in his day Asia Minor and modern day Turkey. We, we moved on in 1 Peter chapter 1 to see Peter encouraging the church to endure suffering that they may incur for their faith, knowing that it is God who is doing good things in them through their suffering, and to look to the hope that they have of eternal life, of salvation in Jesus, to help to endure that suffering. We saw that the church, <clears throat> as God's people, the true Israel, by their faith in Jesus, are called to be a holy people, to pursue lives of holiness, lives of Christ-likeness. And that as they do that, they will endure suffering for their faith. Sometimes it will come from uh, authority figures uh, and those in authority in the world. And, and even as we receive, as we saw in 1 Peter 2, even as we might be the subjects of suffering from those in authority, emperors, presidents, kings, we're still to submit to the rule that they have insofar as they don't call us uh, to negate or, or, or uh, disregard our faith in Christ. We're also to, we're to, to submit in all, to authority in all sorts of ways, to governing authorities, to um, uh, slaves, to their masters. Modern day, the equivalent would be, you know, you employees to your employers, uh, husbands or wives to their husbands. And, and at the same time, we saw the flip side of that, that all of those who have authority are, are to, as believers, exercise it in a Christ-like way. We saw most recently at the end of 1 Peter 3 and the beginning of 1 Peter 4, this emphasis on stewarding God's grace, even as we suffer, continuing to do what is good, continuing to live as Christ would have us to live, continuing to suffer, even for doing what is right, knowing that that may be God's will for us. And that's kind of where we landed at the end of chapter four last week, knowing that it is God's will that we suffer, that we might suffer according to his will, 
that in all of it, we are to entrust our souls, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.19, entrust our souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Now here in 1 Peter 5, Peter is going to conclude his letter by speaking specifically to the congregation, to the, well, the various congregations to which he's speaking. He's going to address specifically their leaders and also them as a whole body, giving them some final words on what it is to be faithful in the midst of suffering. We'll see here that as the church suffers, though it ought to look as the church suffers, they ought to look to their elders, to their leaders, to shepherd them. And as the church suffers, we'll see here in first Peter five, that they're to walk humbly with one another, looking forward to the strength and salvation that God provides. And so let's uh, read first Peter five, the whole of the chapter. And if you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word together. Peter closes his letter in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here saying, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written, you, written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated this morning. So seeing here in these final words, these final thoughts on, on faithfulness uh, for the body, specifically uh, the church's leaders and its congregation, we see Peter addressing those two different groups. And so here first in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, we see Peter addressing the elders and their charge, their commission and how they are to lead. He addresses them as, uh, as elders. The Greek word there is presbyteros or presbyteroi in the plural. Uh, the word from which our uh, friends, the uh, Presbyterians, get their, uh, the name of their denomination. They are led by various different uh, uh, elders and, and uh, structures of elders. Peter here is speaking to these who are leaders in the church. Now, that word elder is used all throughout the Bible, actually, Old Testament and New Testament. And it has its roots in the Jewish office of elder. The, the Jewish elders were those who, even from the time of Moses, would help to, to give leadership and organization to the community of Jews in a particular place. They helped rabbis in teaching and, and, uh, and just engaged in leading the people and taking uh, that responsibility of leadership. In the, New Testament, in the New Testament church, though, that position of elder changes just a little bit. It's a little bit different from the Jewish office. The New Testament church office of elder are those who teach and lead the Christian church. 
Now, there are three words in the New Testament that are used interchangeably for this office of elder. They are elder, shepherd, or pastor, and overseer. Those three words used synonymously throughout the Old Testament to speak uh, about this, this one office of elder, or as we call in our contemporary context, pastor. These three terms... Used throughout the New Testament, we said elder, the term elder is used in Acts 11 uh, for the first time in speaking of the office in the church. Again, in Acts chapter 14 and in Acts chapter 20, it's used here in 1 Peter 5 and again in Titus chapter 1, speaking of the office of elder. That name shepherd or, or, uh, or pastor, the Latin uh, pastors that we get from the, the Latin term for that word shepherd, uh, we see used in Ephesians chapter 4. Overseer or uh, episkopos, we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. All of these terms used interchangeably for what we understand as the office of pastor. Interestingly enough, every time that that word elder is used in the New Testament, it always occurs in the plural, elders, leading us to, uh, to believe and to understand that the New Testament church uh, uh, and New Testament churches did not have a single pastor among them to lead them, but a group of men who were called and equipped by God to lead them faithfully as the church. And makes sense in a lot of ways. It's difficult for one man to lead several people, to pastor several people, and to provide shepherding care to them, but also it's impossible really, and and not quite like God to gift one man with all of the things needed to lead a congregation. Very often God gifts lots of people with lots of different gifts. And, uh, and it seemed to be the case in the new Testament that God was calling multiple men in each individual city, each individual congregation to lead that church together. Peter addresses the elders, and I'll use that word elders primarily today and not pastor, but when you hear elder, think pastor, think overseer, use those words synonymously. Peter charges the elders saying, shepherd the flock. That's the command that he gives them. Care for the flock. This is the imperative, the command that we see there in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And as uh, elders, they are to care for their flock in specific ways. First of all, with intimate care. That word shepherd the, used in the verbal form in other places of the New Testament is translated as care. Care for them. Shepherds care for their sheep, that much we know. And they care for their sheep in very intimate ways. Uh, our brother John Lodat, during our interim period prior to uh, uh, the church calling me a senior pastor, he preached through Psalm 23 and gave us lots of really good information and really good pictures of the kind of care that shepherds give for their sheep. Shepherds are to, pastors are to shepherd their sheep with intimate care, seeing to it that they are fed, that they are cared for, that they are uh, uh, well-maintained and healthy. You may have in your mind already the image uh, or the command of Jesus to Peter at the end of John 21. There the risen Lord is eating a breakfast of fried fish on the shore of the lake and he's eating there with Peter. And three times he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter three times says, yes, Lord, I do love you. And in response to each of those, Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock, right? Feed my lambs, care for them. So this image of, of, of shepherding as intimate care for the people of the church is there even from the end of John's gospel. So it's no surprise that Peter would use the same imagery here as he's instructing the elders in the congregation about how they are to care for their flock as a shepherd with intimate care, but also with Christ as the example, 
Here in verses 2 and 3, we have a long list of how the elders, uh, characteristics uh, that ought to, uh, or or, uh, uh, aspects that ought to characterize the ministry of an elder to his congregation or elders to their congregation. These verses instruct the, the elder to shepherd or pastor the church in a way that looks like Jesus. Peter refers to Jesus in verse 4 as the chief shepherd, the one for whom all elders are working, the one who has hired these under-shepherds, so to speak. Jesus, this good shepherd, as he refers to himself in John chapter 10, is the goal. He's the picture. He's the example of the elder's ministry in the church. So then elders are to shepherd their people with Christ as their example by doing several things. First of all, giving oversight. It says exercise oversight. That is the Greek word episkopeo, the the verb there for giving oversight. It's the same, uh, the root of the word from which we get uh, that word episkopos, which means overseer. That's the word that Paul uses to refer to the office of pastor, elder, overseer in uh, 1 Timothy 3. Elders are to give oversight. This involves primarily the leadership and direction of the congregation. That's what elders do. They lead the congregation in faithfulness to Christ toward fulfilling the great commission to meeting the needs that they have for one another and to reaching out uh, in, in evangelistic emphasis and fervor to their community. That's what elders do. They lead congregations. And they're to do this not by compulsion, Peter says. Elders should not be forced to lead but should sense a a kind of calling by God to it. So elders should not be pressed into service by a congregation, and neither should elders seek to appoint themselves as elders over the congregation. But God should be in all of it, calling the man and calling the church, or the men and the church to affirm their eldership. So they're not to do it by compulsion. And likewise, it's not done from a sense of obligation, but from joy and freedom. Thus, Peter says, willingly, do it willingly according to God or as God would have you. So those men who are called to be elders in a a particular church ought to do so because God is calling them and because the church is affirming them in that. And not because they're looking to gain anything by it, not looking to puff themselves up. So Peter says, uh, continues on here, that they're to give oversight, to shepherd the body, not from shameful gain. The elder, the heart of the elder is to be one of, uh, of humble service to others. Right, pastoral care to others and not to puff themselves up, not to achieve a, a, a position of respect. Peter says, don't do it from shameful gain, but eagerly. The contrast here to selfish gain being that an elder serves willingly because God has called him and to, to do this and to be obedient in this calling that God has given. Not that the pastor, not that the elder or group of elders are beholden to a salary or pursuit of position or reputation. Most elders in the early church did not receive much for their service to the body. Now, as the church has been blessed and as the church is able to, we see instruction from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 that Paul, Paul telling Timothy that the churches ought to uh, care for their pastors who lead them well, particularly in teaching of the word, uh, and to care for them. And the, the, the implication of this area is a, is a financial respect. But many of the pastors in the first century did not pastor. Many of the elders were not leading in their church because they gained anything monetarily from it, but because God had called them to do it. Elders are called to shepherd with Christ as the example, giving oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly, according to God, not from shameful gain, but eagerly. Finally, not domineering, but being an example to the flock. Elders are not to be domineering over their 
uh, congregations. Implicit here is this concept of using authority in an abusive way. That's what it is to domineer someone, to lord over them, some of your translations might say. Exercising authority that has not been rightly given or exercising authority in an abusive or harmful way. This kind of behavior on the part of elders who do lead in domineering ways uh, seeks the will of the one over the good of the many. So rather than being domineering, there are to be examples to the flock. Literally, there are to be types for the flock. Elders are to be an example to their congregation, the, uh, a type of Christ to their congregation. By type, what I mean is this, not that, that, that elders are like or are Jesus, but we point people to Jesus, to the, exam, to the chief shepherd. As a type, elders live as one who points to something or someone beyond themselves. Elders are to be types, they're to be shadows, they're to be signposts on the road to Jesus for their congregation. We are to, elders are to lead their church to, to follow the example of Christ, to attain to Christ's likeness, to grow in holiness in our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is to be the heart of the elders to their congregation. Finally, we see in verse 4 that, that shepherding as an elder or as a group of elders involves reward from Jesus. Verse 4, we read this, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. For elders who care well for their flock, who shepherd them uh, in a God-glorifying way, there's a crown of glory awaiting them when Christ appears, when the chief shepherd comes The entire picture then of work and reward by and for elders is totally countercultural in its original context to uh, the, the way that the world views those who lead now. In nearly all societies, this kind of humble, serving, caring leadership is not seen as a way to achieve reward. Rather, it's often the case that those who are most successful as quote unquote leaders are those that get for themselves at the cost of those they lead. We don't have to look very far in the corporate secular world to see leaders who who amass great amounts of wealth to the detriment of those that are working for them. The picture of the office of elder is quite the opposite of this. If anything, elders give and serve in the strength of God and from the call of God, irrespective of whether they gain anything for it in this life or not. This is no reason to deprive elders who serve and lead well from appropriate uh, remuneration for caring for them financially, as we see in 1 Timothy 5. But it also does not afford the elder any position from which to demand remuneration or to demand a salary. Elders serve the church of God in the strength of God, by the call of God, depending upon the provision of God through the church that they shepherd. Serving the congregation with this character which, which is wonderfully like that of Christ, right? Jesus sets the perfect example for elders to follow. Serving the congregation with this character results for elders who, who do this well with a reward of glory like Christ's from Christ when he returns again. Now, two notes to us here this morning. One to uh, uh, Christians and one to elders. So all of us are Christians, but particularly to church members who are not elders. To you who are church members, not elders... No one understand this. Elders are not perfect. While we are to exemplify a Christ-like life, we will not do that perfectly like Christ. I want to let you in on something. Elders make mistakes. Pastors make mistakes. I made mistakes this week. 
Most of us would not want anyone to judge our faithfulness as a Christian by one moment of human weakness or frailty. So church members, extend the same kind of grace to your elders who try to shepherd you like Christ, but who will never be Christ and who will sometimes make mistakes. Judge their character not by a single disappointment or disagreement, but judge their character by the consistent pattern of shepherding that they practice. Judge their character by the trajectory of their lives. Are they growing in in closeness with Christ? Are they looking more like Jesus every day? Are they leading with greater grace and compassion and wisdom day by day? And, And judge their faithfulness to the office of elder that way. Now a note to elders. I include myself in this. And as much as you are able, strive to be like Christ. Those who God has called to lead the church, and as much as you are able, and young men, maybe God has has placed this call on your life, and you are working toward that, seeking to see how God would, would place you in service and leadership to the church, know this and prepare for this now. As much as you are able, you need to strive to be like Christ. Knowing that we are not Jesus, we're not perfect, does not give us as elders an excuse not to strive in the power of God for greater Christ-likeness. It doesn't give us an excuse to not strive to be more like Jesus. Though we are not the embodiment of our Savior for the church, we do have a clear command from Scripture to follow the lead of the chief shepherd because it is his sheep that we are caring for. Finally, what does all this mean to us, these first four verses about elders and what they do in the church? Remind us that this all comes in the context of Peter speaking to a church that is going to suffer. Church, you're going to suffer, and it's God's will that you suffer. So elders shepherd the flock this way. Because the church will suffer, elders must be devoted to self-denying care and toil for the faithfulness of the church to Christ. That's what elders must do uh, this scripture, this passage, these, these verses have more application for a pastor or for pastors, maybe than it does for the congregation. And there's stuff for us to do as elders. We need to lead this way, but church, you can pray that we would lead this way. You can pray for us that we would be devoted to self-denying care and toil for your faithfulness to Christ. Japanese army officer, Hiro Onoda was sent to the Philippines in 1944, in August of 1944, on an information-gathering mission. He had several troops with him. They took to the, to the hills, to the jungles of the Philippines, and, and there they tried to get as much information about uh, the American troop movements as they could and that sort of thing. They missed out on the treaty that was signed in December of 1944 that ended World War II. Because they didn't get the news, they continued on with the orders that they had been given. They lived in the jungle. They fought off those who were trying to get to them. Uh, Hiro Onoda, uh, sole uh, survivor among all of those who were with him, uh, survived and lived in the, in the jungles of the Philippines for 30 years. Following the orders he was given when he was sent there in August of 1944. It took Hiro Onoda's original commanding officer in his platoon to come to the uh, island of the Philippines where he was and to meet him face to face to tell him the war is over, uh, your service has completed. 
Hiro Onoda was completely devoted to the orders, to the commands that were given to him. He gave his life for 30 years, uh, fulfilling the commands that were given to him as a faithful officer of the Japanese army. Elders, pastors, we do well to have the same sort of devotion to the command that Christ has given to us in shepherding the church until he returns to relieve us of duty. Peter addresses elders and their charge. He also addresses in verses 5 through 11 the church and their conduct. First of all, in verse 5, he speaks about submission to the elders. That is uh, uh, an orderly uh, obedience or orderly following of the leadership of the elders. Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That word, likewise, the, the phrase in the same way refers to the manner in which Peter is exhorting younger men as he, ex, as he has exhorted the elders. As both groups are exhorted by Peter, who is an elder himself and a witness to Christ. They are to uh, hear the authority in Peter's voice that Christ has given to Peter and, and to be obedient to what he is saying. The exhortation to submit to elders, to these younger men in the congregations, is likely in light of younger men's natural disposition to buck against authority. Young men tend to be defiant. That's almost a a rule of society. We push back against authority. But let us not overlook the fact this morning that whether we are young or old, particularly as Western, American, individualistic, libertarian people, we all tend to buck against authority in our lives even when it's given by God. So because Peter addresses those who are younger explicitly here, younger men submit to the elders, let us not assume that our age precludes us from what God is asking of the church here in chapter 5. We've already seen in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3 that God gives authority structures in the world, governing authorities, family authority, uh, authority uh, in, in in the economic sector, That God gives these authority structures in the world and in the home for us to follow and for our good. That it's good for us to submit to the authority that God has given. But somehow when it comes to authority in the church, we see so many Christians who, who view it with disdain and distrust. Do we not? Perhaps the distrust is warranted at times. There are abusive and arrogant pastors who domineer their flocks. That is true, but not all. And there are some pastors, some elders who are ineffective and passive, who never lead out in anything, but not all. So then it's right for churches of believers, groups of, of, of Christians united by, uh, by their faith in Christ to recognize that the elders that they have called to lead them have been entrusted with authority to teach and to lead that congregation. And the congregation does well, is right, to respect the authority of the elders that has been given to them by God and the church, especially as the elders exercise oversight and care in, in, in a Christ-like manner, in the manner that Jesus said. We ought to do it. So then church, here's the application portion for you. Insofar as your elders shepherd this church like Christ, uh, you, the church, are to follow the Christ-like lead of your elders. That's the application of this text. Now, here's just a little bit of advice for you or a a word of... Well, I want to give you two. A word of advice and a word of invitation. Word of advice. When a pastor does something you don't agree with, and I promise you that day is coming... Or he does something, makes a decision that you're skeptical about. Let your first response be to ask the question of the pastor to the pastor himself. 
what's the motivation of this decision? I don't understand this, right? So there's something going, something has happened to, to help you make or to lead you to make this decision, this decision. I don't understand it. So just help me understand that. Ask, can you share with me how you came to this conclusion, right? So when your pastor does something that you don't like, rather than saying, oh, he's the worst, Go and ask him the question, what led up to that? Just help me understand your thinking in that process. Odds are you'll come away with a, with, with a, with a, a greater bond of, of friendship and fellowship in the gospel. Um, and you'll avoid a fight and a split in the church. That's my word of advice. Approach with the question, help me understand this. Now, here's the invitation. When I do that, when I, when I make a decision in leading our church that you don't agree with or you don't understand or maybe you're skeptical of, maybe it frustrates you, maybe it makes you angry. When I make a decision or set us on a course that you don't fully understand, will you please come to me and ask that question? What, what led you up to that decision? Because I want to be able to share with that. And sometimes I don't have opportunity, maybe, as I, or maybe I don't take advantage of the opportunity as best as I can to explain what's going into making some of the decisions that, that I will make in the future. And so when that happens, I would just say, please come talk to me because I would love to explain the things that are going on, the things I feel that God is leading us to do. And I look forward to having that conversation. Peter says to the church that they're to submit to the elders, to, to respect and to follow the lead of the elders. But then in the second part of verse 5 through verse 7, he says there's to be humility by all. Everyone is to be humble. Church humility is the antidote to arrogance and pride and the division that always happens among prideful people. Have you ever known two prideful people to really get along very well? Peter says here to the church, put on humility like clothing. Clothe yourselves with humility. They say in every relationship in the church, we are all to proceed with humility. Congregations to their elders, members to one another, elders to their congregation. All of it is to have this flavor of humility. And so Peter takes us to Proverbs three thirty four in verse 5, citing that verse to remind us that God gives his favor to those who are humble, but withholds his favor from those who are prideful. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So then Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. Put humility on. Dress yourselves with humility. Christian humility in this way is voluntary it's disciplined, and it, all, and it is always self-imposed. For one person to humble another is not humility, it's subjugation and humiliation. The alpha dog in a wolf pack eats first, and he eats best, and he subdues every challenge to his strength and authority in the pack. But Christian humility looks quite different. Christian humility is the alpha dog eating last and seeing to the health of others before himself. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, clothe yourselves with humility to care for others in your church, in your local congregation, and entrust your cares to God who cares for you. Humble people don't look out for their own needs first, but for the needs of others. The kind of humility that Peter is, is calling the church to is important because as we suffer, as we endure suffering, remember, all the context of all of this is, is for a church that, that is beginning to and will endure much suffering. As people suffer, all of our attention very often turns inward. Woe is me. I'm going through all this stuff. I have these needs. I have these hurts. I have these pains. Our personal concerns and our personal cares, our personal needs drive out the care that we have for others when we suffer. 
We tend to see ourselves and our hurts as more deserving than others. We get irritated when our needs aren't met. And the irritation that comes from our pride leads to disdain for others. And disdain for others leads to disrespect. Disrespect to distrust. And distrust to the destruction of the unity of the body. So Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, not with pride, but with humility. Care for one another. See the needs of others as more important than your own. And, and cast your anxieties, cast your cares on God because he cares for you. Entrust your needs, entrust your hurts, entrust your suffering to God who cares for you. And you will find, by the way, that as you do that, as you practice that kind of humility, caring for others, as the church broadly practices that kind of humility, the needs, the cares, the concerns that you have will be met by others in the congregation. Right? If humility pervades the church of Christ, the body of Christ, everyone's needs will be cared for in the appropriate way as everyone is caring for everybody else. Just as there is reward for elders who lead well, there's also reward for, for Christians who humble themselves appropriately. Just as God crowns elders who lead like Christ with a crown of glory, he also promises to exalt, that is to lift up those who are humble here in verse 6. Jesus, who humbled himself to die for our sins on the cross, was himself lifted up and exalted. He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of all glory and honor in heaven and on earth, to receive all praise and glory. And so we too, Christian, you, as you humble yourself for the good of others, in the name of Jesus, will be rewarded by God. So then, here's the point, here's the takeaway from this. All believers, then that is probably the majority of you in this room, must consciously practice humility so you can guard against the destruction of pride. Pride will tear a church apart. Humility will bind it ever closer together. If you ever happen to find yourself wallowing in your suffering or hardship, in your pride and your self-concern, do this. Stop for a moment thinking about yourself and how much you're hurting and how much pain you're in and write a thank you note. Write a thank you note to someone. Think about somebody else and and the work that they do or something that they've done that has blessed you and write them a thank you note to think about others. Or call someone else in, in your congregation, brother or sister, and maybe they're going through some stuff, maybe they're not, but give them a call on the phone and ask them how you can pray for them. Consciously humble yourself on purpose to serve others. And in so doing, set an example for what Christian humility looks like. You'll often find that as you extend your efforts and energy to care for others in the body, that they will reciprocate that care. And the things that you were so concerned about and hurting about and and, and keeping you up at night before will now be lifted off of you as others endeavor to carry the burden. So when you're tempted to be prideful, when you're tempted to be selfish, write someone a thank you note. Call someone and ask how you can pray for them. Fight for uh, uh, humility in your own life. Thirdly, here in verse 8, Peter, addressing the congregation, encourages them to resolute resistance toward evil. To have a resolute resistance to evil. Here for the third time in verse 8, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The third time he's used that word, sober-minded or self-controlled, kind of all in the same uh, uh, theme of, of, uh, of exhortation there. This time, he's telling them to be sober-minded, to be watchful with regard to their spiritual lives, to, to their spiritual watchfulness, spiritual awareness. We are to be watchful so that we can resist Satan. 
Peter says in verse uh, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We are to resist Satan, firm in our faith. Satan who is, as Peter says, a roaring lion, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But to be sober-minded, watchful, clear-headed, thinking about our life as spiritual warfare because it is. Because Satan is after us to tempt us to fall away from our faith, to disregard others, to cause division in the body. Peter says, resist him firm in your faith, firm in your trust in Christ. With the knowledge that your brothers and sisters around the world are going through the same kinds of trials. Peter's here saying, right, there's a sense of, uh, a sort of sense of camaraderie among believers as we suffer, knowing that we're not alone in this. Friend, if you suffer, if you're insulted for your faith, know that you are not the first person to ever endure that. Uh, Many others, maybe millions of Christians before you have experienced the same thing. Millions of Christians around the world are experiencing far worse even today. There are many others, many other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are in a similar situation and who are also standing firm in their faith. There's encouragement in knowing that. It's encouragement in knowing that that there are brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted and and are continuing to stand firm in their faith. So I'd ask us this morning, do we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world? We know that Christians in places like North Korea and Iran, parts of India, parts of communist China face trouble and distress for their faith daily. We should be encouraged, particularly by what Peter says, that they continue. We we should be encouraged by their, their continuing to stand firm in their faith, even through the temptation that comes with suffering. But we should also commit ourselves to praying for their continued and God God glorifying steadfastness in persecution. Friends, make it a habit to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Peter says, we resist Satan. We stand fast in our faith, knowing that we will not have to do so forever or even in our own strength. Stand firm in your faith. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 10 here encourages us that all of our suffering for for the Christian faith will be temporary. There's a day when it will end. Peter says, after you have suffered a little while, his expectation is that you will not suffer forever. Now, a little while, I'll have you know, is a relative term. That doesn't mean that all your suffering for Christ or suffering in any other way will end, will stop in this life. Quite the opposite, the suffering that you endure may end your life. The encouragement, though, in what Peter says is that even though believers may suffer unto death, that God stands to help them in the midst of their suffering and beyond, and that he can be trusted to do so because he is the one who has called Christians to salvation in Christ. Peter says with four words what the Lord will do for us in and through and as a result of suffering. He says he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In many ways, these words all speak synonymously of God's work to see us through our suffering and to give to us all that we need in the midst of our suffering and to save us from all of our suffering uh, at the point that we die and enter into eternity with him. The full reward of eternal life as we endure suffering is what awaits us as we endure faithfully. 
So knowing that, knowing that suffering is temporary and knowing that reward and, and strength and confirmation and establishment, right? The, the, the support of God to you is coming. Then Christian actively resist the work of Satan in your life. Knowing that it is temporary, knowing that God will will strengthen you through your suffering and even after your suffering in a perfect way, actively resist the work of Satan in your life. The life of the Christian is one of regular spiritual warfare. Now, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who says that there's a devil behind every bush, but there most certainly is a devil, friends. His desire, as Peter says, is to devour your soul. And he will use your suffering to tempt you to say that there must be no God, that there can be no God. And since there is no God, there certainly is no gospel, no point to this life, and no salvation to come. Friend, you who are here this morning, you're not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. You may not recognize the existence of Satan as true. But Satan is scheming every moment to draw you further from God. He is a great disguise artist. He may be a devouring lion, but he certainly does not dress himself as such. Isn't it true that some of the most dangerous, some of those vile, some of those violent people in human history are often those that we least expect? Charles Manson recently uh, died in, in prison in California. Even he, maybe one, of those, uh, maybe one of the most vile and violent, wicked people that the world has ever known, was, was for all intents and purposes, uh, a nice guy. People got along with Charles Manson. He was a very winsome person. He could convince people to do all sorts of heinous things because he was a nice guy. Satan is a great disguise artist. This roaring lion has perfected the spiritual Ponzi scheme. He convinces you that your sin is not really sin because God doesn't really exist. And even if he did, he couldn't really be a good God. So sin can't really be as bad as the Bible says it is. Friend, the devil plays on your pride and even on your good intentions to get you to invest all that you have in a worldview that is devoid of absolute truth, where either nothing really matters or God doesn't really care. And as you pour all that you have into this deception, you are rewarded, you are rewarded with temporary success and happiness as you do what pleases you while being defrauded of what you need more than anything else in the world. What you need more than anything else in the world is to be made right with the good and perfect, only true and just God that you have rejected by following your own desires. Friend, you who are not a Christian here today, know that as you continue to walk in your disobedience to the gospel, in your resistance to to, to Christ, that you are not alone in that endeavor. That Satan is helping you to do that. He is helping you to, to resist God. So my invitation to you today is that if any of this is ringing true, if you are finding that all of your efforts in life are, are empty and void and not fulfilling at all, see them for what they are, this spiritual Ponzi scheme, and reject it for truth. Reject it for a sure investment in Christ. Place your faith in Jesus who died for you, took your sins, paid the penalty that you owe to God, was raised from the dead so that by faith in him, you can be saved from your sins, forgiven of them, be right with God and enjoy an eternity with him. Don't give in to the spiritual Ponzi scheme that Satan would have you invest in. Finally, we see in verses 12 through 14, as Peter closes his letter, a call to faithfulness, even to the end, a call to faithfulness 
all the way home, so to speak. He says here by Silvanus. Silvanus is another name for Silas, missionary, uh, 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 missionary in the early church. Uh, the one through whom Peter is uh, sending this letter. He, Silvanus, uh, Silas is likely the one who's delivering this letter to the churches. Maybe even the one who is taking dictation of this letter for Peter. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. We are to be faithful to the end, Peter says, in the grace of the gospel. Peter says here he's writing to encourage and to attest to the true grace of God in which the church who knows Christ finds themselves standing fast, standing firm. This grace is the gift of God, which is salvation and forgiveness of sins. This grace is the hope of eternal life for every person who trusts in Jesus. In this true gospel, the church has stood firm, should continue to stand firm as they endure hardship, and will be caused to stand firm by God as they do so. Peter says, stand firm in the grace of the gospel that I've delivered, and do this in the bond of brotherhood. Verses 13 and 14. Peter writes, she who is at Babylon, which is code language for the city of Rome, who is likewise chosen. Here he's speaking of the, of the church. Remember he referred to the, the churches in Asia Minor in the first part of his letter as those who are chosen exiles of the dispersion. Now he's speaking of the chosen one who's in Babylon. That is the church that is in Rome. She likewise sends you greetings. And so does Mark, John Mark, another early missionary, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Here in these final verses, Peter sends greetings to his brothers and sisters in Asia Minor from the other brothers and sisters in Christ who live in Rome, the church in Rome. He's saying, we love you, we're praying for you, and even though we suffer, we hold fast to the same gospel that you do. Peter is saying to the churches in Asia Minor, you are not alone in this. God is working in, in his church all around the world for good things and for his glory. We're in this together. It's a team effort. We're a people of God chosen by him to do his will. And he's helping us to do it. In closing, he says to greet one another with a kiss of love. A common in that day, non-romantic expression of brotherly love, a kiss on the cheek. Our closest equivalent in our cultural context today would be a, you know, a, a hearty, heartfelt hug, a Don Herpelsheimer kind of hug. All this goes to, now if you want to give each other, greet one another with a kiss of love, I'm not opposed to that. Just make sure you don't have any uh, communicable viruses or anything like that, okay? All this goes to underscore again for the church, this recurring importance all throughout Peter's letter, as we've seen in, in the last several weeks, of humble brotherly love that Christians must have for one another all the time. Christians are going to suffer They're to look to one another for care, for love in that time of suffering. Looking to the elders to lead them in Christ-like holiness as they suffer. And so knowing that, we know this from just these final verses of 1 Peter. That there is no greater purpose with which to suffer than the gospel. There is no greater purpose, no greater thing to endure suffering for in this life than the gospel. And there is also simultaneously no greater help in suffering for the gospel than family. And that's how Peter closes this letter. Church, you're going to suffer. Do it with holiness, knowing that God is working holiness in you. God has called men to lead you in this, to care for your souls, even as you suffer. So follow their example, follow their leadership. And by the way, care for one another, care for one another. 
endures, endures suffering arm in arm with brothers and sisters of like faith as you together follow Christ in holiness, seeking to be more like him, extending the gospel into a world that has no idea the devastating effects of their sin. Church, may we, in response to what God's servant Peter has written, be obedient to it. May we suffer well, loving one another, humbling ourselves to care for each other, following those who, who strive to lead us like Christ into Christ-like holiness. Let's pray.